and welcome to Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket, a podcast about the work of comedy writer, performer, director, and all-round genius, Julia Davis. I'm Sophie Davis, no relation, and on each episode, I'm joined by a guest to talk about a different show created by Julia Davis. This episode is about Nighty Night Series 1, and my guest is comedian and writer, Emily Benita. So what was your introduction to Julia Davis? It would actually be Nighty Night Season 1, because BBC Three started in about 2003. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And I remember having Freeview and that felt like a whole new world of channels opening up, being the particular age of millennial that I am. And it was like a trio of shows when BBC Three started out being like youth programming, but well before sort of it got kind of taken over by like reality TV and fact tense. It was more about let's do really out there comedy. Let's do something that we know is only going to be shown at night and we know who our audience is. Yeah. I think Little Britain was one of their first big shows and yeah, Nighty Night was about a year after the channel launch. So that was definitely it. a big deal. For sure. So for me, it was like this trio of Nighty Night Pulling mm-hmm. and Monkey Dust. Oh, I forgot about that. And those were the three shows that really felt like, even though I'd been brought up on so much kind of of my parents' humour and, and both of them had a great sense of humour and our family just would quote incessantly from a lot of BBC stuff like Monty Python and The Young Ones and Bottom. So there was always this like anarchic, surreal aspect to what I was raised on. But this was the first time it felt like I'm staying up late and sneaking down to watch the TV and this feels like mine. I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, like it was something for you. I think a lot of people who are a bit older than us had that sort of thing with the young ones where it was, you know, your parents didn't really get it. And it was definitely for the youth. It was comedy that was felt a bit alternative. Absolutely. And I feel like looking back and re-watching Nighty Night for this, which I wanted to re-watch it anyway, mm. not like I need an excuse, but it's great to have a reason. And things like pulling and, and monkey dust in particular, to me, you can look I think now it's at things like memes, like the really out there kind of like Dadaist, surreal stuff and kind of trace it back to that. But that was my introduction, was Nighty Night Series 1. Yeah, same for me. So on this episode, we are just talking about Series 1. Uh, series 2 is going to be on a different episode of the podcast. A little bit of background just before we get into the actual episodes. Like we've said already, it aired at the beginning of 2004 on BBC Three, which had only existed as a channel for one year at that point. Feels mad that it's kind of obviously it's not gone now, but it's still online. But it's it, so different. Yeah, to what it, was. it doesn't seem that long ago that it launched <laughs> at all. I feel like it's coming back round now. You look at things like Daisy Haggers Back to Life, and mm-hmm. it's, it's like I feel like oh, I feel like it's coming home. But yeah, it still feels like yesterday, I guess, compared to the other channels, of course, which have gone on for decades. The institutions that they are. Yeah. So 
Julia has said that after she did Human Remains with Rob Brydon, some commissioners at the BBC suggested that she should have a go at writing something by herself. So she went away and wrote a pilot for Nighty Night. Apparently, she took the script to them and uh, did the Jill Tyrrell voice for them. And they basically said, yeah, off you go <laughs> and commissioned a series. Uh, saw the potential just sort of in the voice, really. Uh, and then apart from Julia, obviously, the cast includes Rebecca Front, Angus Dayton, Kevin Eldon, Ruth Jones, Felicity Montague, and Mark Gatiss. And it's directed by Tony Dow, who has directed lots of comedy over the years, and he'd later direct Hunderby for Julia as well. So we're about 15 years on now from when Nighty Night aired. And obviously she has done a lot of other stuff since, but I still feel like she's kind of most known for Nighty Night. Yes. I mean... I'm excluding people who only know her from Gavin and Stacey because yeah. that does seem to be a lot of the general public. They know her as Dawn from Gavin and Stacey. But like in terms of the shows that she created herself, I feel like Nighty Night is kind of still the most popular one. Like, for example, with the uh, Julia Davis quotes Twitter account that I run, whenever I post a quote from Nighty Night, it tends to get a much bigger response than anything from any of her other shows. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think it's probably, it is just, I think, the distillation of everything that Julia Davis does. It's like her paradigm work. Mm -hmm. And coming back round to Human Remains and seeking out everything that I could of hers, obviously, after Nighty Night came out and there wasn't a huge amount, but tracing back and seeing her appear in other things, obviously Human Remains and the various different female characters in that, I think you can see little like glimmers of Jill. And then in Jam as well, mm -hmm. I think there's so many sketches where there's just that kind of, like the two in particular, there's one with a, a midwife who manages to seduce a husband whilst his wife is giving birth. <laughs> That which feels is a, very Jill Tyrrell. It's a very Jill Tyrrell <laughs> move. And then a character who is a stupid woman for hire. So, and, and she basically, in a very um, alt-right sort of rhetoric way, manages to just brick wall whatever someone is saying to her and then pushes someone to their breaking point where they're rude and then she gets whatever she wants. And that's it. I think there's little kind of fragments, but I feel like they then lead up to Jill... And then everything else that Julia Davis has done, there's still little threads of it. But I feel like in the same way that you look at someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Fleabag is like her yeah, like ultimate heroine, but there's little kind of um, traces in everything else that she writes, but that's very much... Yeah, and whatever she does now is going to kind of get compared to Fleabag, isn't it? And a similar thing has happened with Julia Davis, like yeah. Sally Forever quite recently basically because the character she was playing was sort of a blonde, deranged woman, mm -hmm. people were automatically like, oh, it's just Jill, Jill Tilrell again. And it yeah. wasn't that simple. You know, it was it was a different character in my eyes. For sure. But there was a comparison that people seemed to be making because they remember Nighty Night so well, you know, even though it was quite a while ago now. Yeah, and her character in Camping as well. But oh, I, right, sure, yeah. But I think people... And and this is, I mean, is this a record, Sophie, for me then just mentioning misogyny? I do think it's misogyny and criticism <laughs> mm -hmm. because you don't criticise, there's, there's not been criticism of male comics who have done similar characters. They're just known for playing that kind of character. The worst thing that will happen to a man in that situation is someone will say, oh, he's been typecast or, you know, oh no, but, but it's generally like, oh, 
these are his themes and he's allowed his themes. And I don't see why Julia Davis isn't allowed the same artistic um, license because what she is interested in and what I find completely compelling about all of her work are these completely grotesque women who in my mind are like the sort of mutant cysts of feminism. It's like someone who, it's it's basically what happens when you have a psychopath mm-hmm. who happens to be a woman mm-hmm. and you give her all of these like inspirational quotes put over sunsets and she just thinks that she is the absolute centre of the world and entitled to everything, which is fascinating to watch. And I think that's it. I think Julia Davis, whenever I see her interviewed, she's quite, I wouldn't say meek, but she's quite shy. Nothing like her characters. Yeah. At all. And I think having that range and kind of like playing with, God, what is it like to be that person? What's it like to have that person around? And to me, like Jill in particular, it's rare that you see such an antagonist at the centre of a comedy. Mm-hmm. I think because you're either looking for someone like, oh, who's so likeable, who's so likeable. Jill is appalling. Like she's just a nightmare. But you're not at any point asked to sympathise with her, which I think is what keeps it funny. She's totally grotesque. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come to this like later on, but pretty much every character in Nighty Night is awful. You know, obviously yeah. Jill is the main one, but there aren't really any sympathetic characters, I think. Um, you know, we'll talk about Kath and Terry later on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, similarly to what you were saying in terms of, you know, men and women, I've heard her mention in interviews before that she feels like she often gets kind of labelled as dark, but in a kind of accusatory way, like yeah. a way that she doesn't feel like a man would be. You know, mm-hmm. she, it's not like she's a genius. It's like she's insane. Yes. <laughs> that seems to be the angle that a lot of people tend to take. And obviously she is nothing like that in real life anyway. No. I think another reason why... Nighty Night is still so popular is similar to what we were saying before, the fact that it was on BBC Three when it was an actual channel. And obviously this was a time before things like Netflix as well, because now there is just so much TV in so many different places. It's a bit overwhelming. And, you know, because her post Nighty Night shows have all been on Sky, it kind of feels like you need to really seek them out if you want to watch them. Like I know a lot of people who, you know, would say that they're big fans of Julia Davis and they're mad about Nighty Night but then they haven't actually watched any of her subsequent work because it's on Sky and they don't feel like they have access to it. Um, I think that is another reason why it's sort of endured. And a lot of people, for example, hadn't heard of Sally Forever when it won the BAFTA a few months ago. Totally. And I think as well, ah, that the dark times before Netflix, (laughs) when you'd get DVDs. And, you know, I immediately bought the 99 DVDs as soon as I could get my hands on them. And it was that thing where I'd watch over and over again. And it's, as we will no likely get onto, so immensely quotable. And you can just really immerse yourself in it. So I think as the way that the media landscape has shifted since, of course, it's like streaming. And then you don't really get necessarily that constant access coming back to it. Mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, properties have to be it's a while until it's going to get the same kind of like long-term stay as Friends on Netflix or something, you know. I think Nighty Night, I mean, I watched it um, because I don't know what my DVDs are. I watched it on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. But who knows how long it's going to be on there for. Mm -hmm. Whereas growing up, I think you could kind of learn by repetition. 
Yeah. And when I was a teenager, I did just have loads of DVDs and watch them over and over again. Whereas in the last few years, it's quite rare that I'll watch a program more than once because yeah. there's just so many of them. Like I've got a, a to watch list on my phone that's constantly like not going down because yeah. every time I watch something on it, I feel like I have to add something else. Like, oh, everyone's talking about Chernobyl at the moment. I have to add that to the list now. And I very rarely watch something more than once. Whereas when I was a teenager, that was my whole life, like just watching the Mighty Boosh and the Nighty Night and Nighty Night over and over again and learning all of the scenes and stuff. Mate, same. <laughs> they, those were the days. Sod the peak TV age. <laughs> I want to go yeah. back to <laughs> yeah. my DVD player. And it seems to also have a particularly devoted fan base among women and gay men, it seems. Yes. There are, you know, obviously straight men who enjoy it as well, but it seems to be predominantly women and gay men like Jill Tyrrell has been described as a gay icon uh, and the Royal Vauxhall Tavern has held like nighty night screenings and themed events and they, they had something in 2016 that was called the uh, Higher Cath Club which was a whole night dedicated to Julia Davis and they had a, a Miss Jill Tyrrell competition which sounds amazing but it's a sort of strange aspect of it really that it's taken off in such a way you know with that community <laughs> totally I can see how that I can see the strains of it though because I think she's so Jill as a character is so outlandish and so camp like if someone had gone as Jill Tyrrell to the Met Gala <laughs> I think everyone would have calmed down on Twitter a lot because oh, I'm she is no one did actually now that you mention it that maybe, would have been ideal maybe someone at the back I don't know didn't, didn't get the uh didn't get in front of the cameras enough. I mean, we could talk for just an hour about Jill Tyrrell's sexuality alone, but she's so like aggressive and, and she is camp, like all that red and pink and the kind of chains. And, you know, she looks like she has bought all of her wardrobe from Ann Summers, not mm -hmm. just her underwear. Yeah. <laughs> like, And I think because she constantly has these really strangely imaginative put downs that are also really deadpan mm -hmm. like I think she's she's perfect kind of like drag queen costume material because she's so recognizable as a character I remember it was like Matt Groening like years and years ago talking about if you can draw your character by silhouette right, yeah then you're on to something mm -hmm. and I think you probably could with Jill or at least like you know you just think bleach blonde hair red and pink mm -hmm. too tight too this whatever too much yeah. even and you know Oh, a vision. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about episode one. We we open in the doctor's office and it's it's kind of the perfect opening, isn't it? Because it sort of it's tells amazing. you everything you need to know about Jill Tyrrell within about 30 seconds, really. Yeah. Like, obviously, she's with her husband. The doctor's talking about how the lump they removed was malignant, so they're going to need to start treatment and obviously your first assumption is that it's her who's got cancer. If you're you know, putting yourself in the mind of someone watching it for the first time, um, I can't really remember what my experience was, but she's just looking distraught and saying, why, why me? And he's comforting her. And then obviously the punchline is, well, let's keep this in perspective. It's me who's got the cancer, Jill. And then, which is just like the most like brilliant gut-punching microcosm of an introduction to her. And then we get, I think... Watching it back, I didn't realise how much I love the like flash of an opening credit as well, because you have that eerie panpipe mm. sort of theme 
music and then just this absolutely terrifying image of Jill like in a dressing gown like hovering yeah it's like a horror film or something it's like a horror film it's setting you up for like this is not kind of like tonally I think it's one of the best opening credit sequences ever because it's like what five seconds Mm -hmm. at most and all you see is like yeah this kind of horror film image of her hovering in the doorway and like the darkness around her and then it just says Nighty Night created by Julia Davis like perfect what more do you need to go into it so that kind of one-two punch of like that incredible like oh no it's me who's got the cancer and then that image and that theme you're just like what what is this nothing else like it and also while we hear the theme tune we just get a few seconds of her reversing out of the driveway really quickly (laughs) and she really narrowly misses Kath like poor (laughs) Kath just in a chair moving into the house and Jill is like about a foot away from her in the car and I when I rewatched that the other day I hadn't actually remembered that moment at all because it's so quick and as first episodes go I think this goes at such a clip at um setting up every single dynamic in in ways like that like that's a joke but you also don't have to have this like long conversation or anything like expositional you're like no we're setting up these two against each other straight off the bat yeah and then similarly in the next scene we get introduced to kath and don and we get a really good idea of their relationship straight away he's being very sort of cold towards her she's being very sort of sickly sweet and she puts a little post-it note saying i love you on his back but then he pecks her on the cheek and she's like oh it's quite early for that don like you sort of hinting at this how incompatible they are sexually which is a big theme in their relationship like you just know straight away and the fact that he gives her a little egg cup of champagne and then swigs from the bottle himself like again just setting up those two characters perfectly and we can just clearly see they're very mismatched as a couple Then we move on to the dating agency, uh, Lasso the Moon. Uh, you know, she's had this devastating news that Terry's, you know, got very serious cancer and she's straight down the dating agency. How soon afterwards do you think this is? Do you think this is literally she's gone home from the doctors and then gone straight over to the dating agency? I don't think she even stopped off at home. I think yeah, she went straight to Lasso the Moon. And thinking back, it's like, well, it's not like this is an age before smartphones. So she must already know about it. Because, you know, she'd be, she'd be on Tinder or something a bit more kind of like, she'd probably even be on Grindr, goodness sake, um, in the hospital waiting room. Straight but, on the- <laughs> Straight on the apps. But back in the day, no kids. We all had to sign up to dating agencies. Yeah, and the guy running it is played by Mark Wotton. Uh, apparently he brought his own like collection of fake teeth with him and, and asked <laughs> Julia to pick one and she went for these sort of braces, which just sort of adds to this weird camp character and yeah it's a very memorable character he's only in this one episode and then obviously he shows up in series two playing a different character as well uh they're talking about what she's looking for in a man and she's sort of in some ways she's not fussy because the ages are 18 to 71 (laughs) but then in other ways she you know wants a minimum height of six foot but she says uh, you know upper limit well i don't want anyone who could find work in a circus (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she's fussy in some ways and uh ideally I'm looking for dark hair, a red jumper and quite a large face. 
<laughs> so and then after that of course he says um oh and, and what about personality well i don't mind if he has one or not really <laughs> it's all about the looks he also asks so would you like someone that's emotionally open able to communicate no thank you <laughs> We go back to Kath and Dawn briefly and she's sort of dancing around in her wedding dress, isn't she? I guess because she's been unpacking, she must have like come across it and decided to put it on. Yeah. And of course, Dawn is like, oh, you've got a new nighty. <laughs> Just so uninterested in her. They like cuddle up on the bed in a really awkward way and he slides up so that her face is just on his crotch. <laughs> I mean, it's just excruciating and yet I can't stop watching it. Yeah, her she looks so unimpressed and says, oh, do, do you want me to? And he's like, oh gosh, that does sound tempting, darling. <laughs> like, as if he's only just, the thought's only just occurred to him. <laughs> yeah. And then possibly the bleakest exchange. Is, is your neck up to it? And she says, oh, well, I, I could use my brace, I suppose. <laughs> And then she goes on to say, but I mean, I'm never really sure how hygienic that sort of thing is anyway. Uh, and I have just done my teeth. <laughs> Again, just hammering home just how incompatible they are. Because he, throughout the whole series, is pretty much just up for it all the time. And she is not keen at all. And it's understandable, you know, she's got a health condition. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to have any sympathy for that at all. I'm kind of assuming they got together before she had MS. This is the thing that I was thinking re-watching. Like, I was just like, how did Kath and Don meet? And how did Jill and Terry yeah. meet? How do they actually get together? Because when you have these established couples and you can see kind of their dynamics and strangely, Jill and Terry actually sort of get on, oddly. Um, whereas, you know, Don and Kath, like, you can't really imagine them ever having been really together. And I think there's this, there's something that in terms of how Julia Davis uses her dialogue, like the, like the language of her dialogue, I just find absolutely amazing because she can swing between being like this sort of Everything sounds really banal, even the surreal stuff. It's always like grounded in 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 like meat and and body parts. So mm -hmm. it's quite um it's quite bodily. But then these exchanges are just so kind of like wincing because they are just really it's like they're so cursed by being polite on the surface, but it means they can't actually say anything of what they're feeling and really communicate honestly with each other. And I think as interested as Julia Davis is in this kind of grotesque, monstrous, power-hungry, psychopathic, narcissist character, she's just as interested in the diametric opposite, which is the woman who kind of squashes all of her needs in order to be like as quiet and small and unfussy as possible. Because I think Sally is like, Sally and mm -hmm. Emma have that dynamic, but it's almost like, I like to imagine that Sally forever happened when Julia Davis was like, I wonder if, uh, what if Jill went after Kath instead? Mm. <laughs> Don, like it was yeah. that, it was that take instead. And yeah, I think it's just that power dynamic and the two different ways of, of these two extremes of women on this, on this scale. I just, oh, Kath, oh God. <laughs> So we go back to the dating agency briefly where they're talking about Glenn oh, and Glenn. saying oh, he describes his personality as Scottish. Uh, and then after that, we go 
back again briefly to Kath and Dawn where he's just handing her the neck brace and she looks very reluctant. <laughs> I love I love the pacing of those scenes in that editing as well, that you do have a break and then you, you think, oh, it's over. It's like, no, the horror has just begun. Yeah. The, the brace ne- is out. We yeah, know the what's neck happening. brace hasn't just been mentioned. It's now in front of us <laughs> and we know what's going to happen next. Uh, we Then we pay our first visit to the salon where... Jill is with a customer called uh, Mrs. Horner, who's played by Vicky Pepperdine. Uh, and obviously she's worked with Julia since then on uh, Camping and Dear Joan and Jerrica. And I love this weird way that Jill is sort of cutting her hair, like she's sort of jerky movements. I feel like every time we see her doing something in the salon, it's like not it's sort of physical comedy, isn't it? But it's quite subtle. Jill is like slapstick through and through. I think she's such an incredible character on every basis, but you're right. Like it is subtle. There's something really sinister and jerky and kind of, she's so wrapped up in her head of looking like she's doing a job rather than actually doing it. Mm. And the hair's all um, falling into the cup of tea that the customer's (laughs) holding. Uh, She's complaining that the colour has all run onto her skin and Jill's claiming that she can't see anything, but it's just everywhere. And she says, oh, well, are you sure you didn't do that when you got home, Mrs Horner? Just anything to avoid any responsibility. And then Linda runs in, sort of panting and wheezing. And she says, oh, I had an attack. And Jill goes... Dennis and she's like no no asthma (laughs) I think I hadn't noticed that joke in the past a few years ago yeah like that struck me when I rewatched it for this I'd never actually noticed that line before if I had noticed that I didn't really get the implications of it Dennis from what I you know hear about him in this series is a lot worse than I'd remembered oh for sure and I think there's something about um you've got that kind of comic trick that you can normally do on radio really well but it's like the thing that's never seen or the character that's never like this happens in in Frasier with Maris yeah. like Niles's wife as well and there's something about oh you know the monster's scarier if you never see it and you just mm. hear about it kind of running yeah. through it and then he does appear in series two and yes. if anything that sort of that does take away from that but it is such an unusual scene when he does appear and it is quite brief you know he is sort of gone after that as yes. far as I remember and I think Ruth Jones is so good in this I think it's one of the strangest performances I've seen in anything ever ever it's so bizarre but it is brilliant I think Linda's actually quite sympathetic in an odd way I think because she's just it's like she doesn't really know she doesn't understand what's going on at any time (laughs) no she's sympathetic because she is horribly childlike and you do I feel like I want to reach in and and rescue her because she seems horribly loyal to horrible people and there's just something about her hair Mm. like a little kind of like anime (laughs) bobbles of buns on each side of her head and she's got this kind of goth thing going on but yeah the fact that Jill thinks that asthma is a is a case of mind over matter (laughs) is again um yeah monstrous (laughs) yeah apparently the look of Linda was based on a woman who Ruth Jones saw working in a shop in Cardiff apparently she was gothy and she had these two buns Um, and apparently the costume designer kind of decided that all of Linda's clothes should be like a size or two too small yes (laughs) just again add into that sort of childlike like she can't even dress herself properly totally and so like uncomfortable and kind of restricted and yeah she manages to make Linda really um like a like a solid sidekick Mm -hmm. who also doesn't well at least not in this series anyway get too drawn into the the dirty work 
although there is their work is filthy. Mm. So yeah, and Joy is quite a sympathetic character. Obviously, she doesn't get a lot to do, but she just seems like a sort of normal, innocent old lady. And Jill's always making these comments to her. Like in this scene, she says to her, um, can you not breathe too close to the clients just while your dentures are settling in? We're not all fish lovers. <laughs> Poor Joy. <laughs> we, we go back to Mrs. Horner and Jill has now given her this awful, really stubby fringe. And she's saying that she doesn't like it. And she's like, oh, my forehead looks huge. And she says, oh, I thought that when you came in, Mrs. Horn. <laughs> like, what's happened is divorce has brought your eyebrows down and that has largened up your forehead. So she draws on these like massively high eyebrows, like some sort of cartoon character. And she's already using Terry's illness against people like to get sympathy because she says here, um, well, I'm not happy either, Mrs. Horn, and my husband's dying of cancer. <laughs> she's just like, she's found the one thing she can just say to anyone to kind of shut them up, really. She manages to be so manipulative in a way that I think is really interesting and, and key to this kind of like grotesque woman character that Julia Davis is so interested in because she manages to wield victimhood as power constantly, even though she's the one that's actually, well, she's abusing everyone. It's just genius that you manage to take an abusive antagonistic character and put them at the forefront and it still be funny. Mm -hmm. Like that's so deftly done. And after this, we see Terry is setting himself up in his hospital bed and he's like, oh, Jill, I feel so. And then she just immediately cuts him off and is like, oh, it's all about you, isn't it, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> and oh, Dr. Wivel warned me about this. They say it usually is worse for the person who ain't got the cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and she gives him these tidy pajamas. <laughs> oh, my God. And says, oh, the, he, the doctor said he will be very small towards the end. <laughs> like he's going to just fit into them eventually and they're like a child size aren't they just no comfort to him whatsoever no. and he, he at one point he says what have I done to deserve this and she goes what do you think Terry there's <laughs> <laughs> just an awkward silence where he's he looks like he's genuinely thinking about it and this scene ends with her leaving and he says oh are you off and she's like no point us both getting depressed <laughs> after this she goes on this date with Glenn and it's all moving so quick, isn't it? Like, it's all the same day, I think, really, isn't it? Absolutely. She's signed up with the dating agency and she's already going on this first date with Glenn. Apparently, like with Mark Wotton, Mark Gatiss brought his own teeth with him. I love that everyone's got these collections of fake teeth. Yeah, just the little supply about. that you can take from job to job. <laughs> you can say, which, which pair of teeth would you like me to wear? Um, I think he said he brought them over from the League of Gentlemen. I'm not sure what character they were for initially apparently they improvised quite a bit of this scene like they sort of came in and decided that he was gonna have this hair and the teeth and the scottish accent and then they just sort of made it up from there really that's nuts because i wonder where his very distinctive tick came in well he has said <laughs> that it's based on something he someone he used to go out with but it was a less extreme version yeah he said apparently you know sometimes he'd turn away and see him in the corner of his eye just doing a little sort of head roll like mouth open thing mm -hmm. not as bad as Glenn but um, yeah because Glenn definitely yeah, yeah. based on a real person that he used to go out with the outtakes on the DVD for 99 are pretty much all just this scene I was just about to say I was looking through <laughs> on YouTube and trying to find stuff and yeah it's 
it's about 10, 15 minutes worth. And it's just this scene because there's something <laughs> lovely about seeing, I love watching bloopers anyway. Yeah. But I think there's something about these outtakes all being this scene and you can see how much both like Julia Davis and Mark Gatiss are just, what What are we doing? This is so ridiculous and not being able to, to hold it. And it doesn't surprise me at all that it's mainly improvised because mm. they do just find these little sparks and it just adds to that awkwardness that's so heavy in the air between all of their little kind of clips back and forth to each other. Glenn, again, there's something about how Jill manages to find some of the most naive people in the world because Glenn says that he's never had a starter before yeah, despite this is the place that he eats in like every night yeah he says like oh i suppose i could have some chips he's just <laughs> the saddest man in the world i think there's a point i think it's in that the last episode actually where she goes for a shower and he says oh i, I could come in with you i, I saw it in a film once <laughs> like just this led this isolated little life i think he even says at one point that he's never He's never saw his um, ex-wife's vagina before. <laughs> like, I don't know how that panned out, but he says that he's never seen one before. Like, oh, I caught a glimpse of it once when she was on the toilet. Oh. <laughs> Just the saddest little man. And, you know, he, like you've already mentioned, he eats in this restaurant every night <laughs> and orders the uh, risotto vegetariana. And he says, oh, what I tend to do is I take the peas out. <laughs> <laughs> As if she'd be interested in that. Of course, she repeats it back to him and says, how much is it that risotto vagina? <laughs> he tries to call the waiter over and obviously he knows him by name. He's like, Peter, Peter. And the waiter's just blanking him. Just Jill is so unimpressed. She does tend to go for men who are quite sort of, I don't know, high up like you know don's a doctor mm -hmm. she only becomes interested in glenn later on when she finds out that he's rich yes. <laughs> at this point glenn is just doing nothing for her is he yeah i wonder why she's sort of entertaining i guess she's um doing a recce like she's she's sussing the joint as to whether he's useful to her mm -hmm. which it doesn't appear um i think she's basically probably looking for a free meal at this point given uh, her order yeah, I'm surprised she doesn't stick around for longer because she orders like a steak and champagne, champagne and stuff. But she's so uninterested that she decides to just sneak <laughs> off. And I love as well when she walks in, just going back a minute, when she walks in, he's carrying this little sign that says Jill on it and with just the blankest expression ever. <laughs> and one of the first things he says to her is, um, four years I've been registered. And she goes, disabled. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, with, with the dating agency. <laughs> so... In amongst this, we see a bit of uh, Kath getting dropped off at the church group, which is called um, Swallows Fun Fellowship. <laughs> and we get the impression that Don is supposed to be going in with her, but he just marches off and says he wants some quiet time. And Kath's like, oh, of course, darling. <laughs> and we kind of start to get a sense of how, like excruciatingly polite Kath is yes. she'll just sort of put up with anything which I guess is why she puts up with Jill for so long whereas most normal people would immediately meet Jill and be like I don't want anything to do with this woman I think there's something really interesting about uh, Kath's Christianity and permit me to try and shove my degree in because I've got to try and make use of it somehow. I did philosophy mm. and um, part of it uh, was looking at Nietzsche because we had to, but Nietzsche talks about um, the kind of uh, the will to power 
and then like a sort of slave morality. And slave morality, he's basically taking a massive pop at Christianity and saying mm. like, oh, it's all the stuff that means that you find strength in being meek and mm. feeble and letting everyone step all over you. So I think it's really interesting that, and, and later on as well, you know, Kath is constantly trying to find this support and um, community from her church. And, you know, her, her vicar is also terrible to her in a very different way because Jill just always seems to have a more reasonable point. Everyone's just happier to sort of go with Jill. And it's a way that Kath is, um, is very easily manipulated as if she is being told that she's not being a good Christian. So I think she thinks she's being like literally and figuratively a good Christian. But I think it's just super interesting to see, yeah, this kind of uh, Nietzschean power dynamic <laughs> between the two women. There we go. That was worth all the debt. Thanks, yeah. Sophie. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Front has said before, uh, Julia wanted Kath to be too polite to be able to deal with Jill's onslaughts, but not so utterly lovable that it would be unbearably cruel to watch those onslaughts. Yes. So I think a similar thing kind of applies to Terry as well, because obviously what Jill does to him is not justified in any way. He does come across as quite an annoying man. And you kind yes. of think, you know, if I was his wife, I would probably be a bit fed up with him too. Yeah. Not to the point where Jill does these horrible things, no. but... Like he, Kevin Eldon just sort of elongates his words all the time where he's sort of like, oh, Jill, in a really exaggerated <laughs> way. That, and I think at one point we see him like chewing his food really loud and yawning really loud. So even though he's this sort of normal man, you know, and he is the victim in all this, like mm. Kath, he does have his flaws as well. So you don't feel complete sympathy for him. Totally. And it's the same with Kath. You're right. Like, it's so interesting that they did manage to completely strike that balance because I'm not looking at it thinking, oh God, poor Kath. You just want to reach in and shake her by the mm. shoulders and be like, stop being so ineffectual. Stand up for yourself. And that is, I think, exactly that. It stops it from being cruel because at all points, you know, people like like Terry and Linda and Kath, there's something about their, they still have like some sense of agency in there somewhere. One of one of my notes thinking about Don's quiet time, which is where he goes to the pub and has a pint to himself and oh. uh, mouths along to Gabrielle. <laughs> I've started making a Spotify playlist, which is all the music from Nighty Night. I think by the time this episode comes out, that will hopefully be live. I might, I'll put it in the show notes or something. Oh, I'll be following that it's in very a heartbeat, of the era Because you get some songs which we'll come to in a minute, like Marillion and stuff. But God. there is a lot of songs that are very specific to like 2004 as well. There's yes. like Mystique and Justin Timberlake and Kylie and all those sorts of things. Which is, of course, the music of the time, but also music that is still on like the Bridget Jones soundtrack mm. like because in Jill's head she's living her I wouldn't say necessarily rom-com but she's living her best life she's enacting her destiny and I think the tagline for the show I can't remember if it's on the DVD or how it was kind of um quickly sort of uh publicized uh, in the marketing material but I remember it being um fatal attraction west country style yeah that's it and I think Jill does have kind of a, um, she, she does have this kind of slightly like 80s erotic thriller thing to her. But the difference is, is that we're not led to believe that she's 
she doesn't think that she's crazy or doing anything untoward, which is quite something. So before the date with Glenn comes to this abrupt end, when she sneaks <laughs> off, he's talking about how his wife, Rachel, once had uh, an affair with someone else. And he's saying, oh, you know, brute force was involved and he was very drunk. I mean, technically it was rape, but he didn't press charges. <laughs> It was such a good little one-liner. And I think that in the outtakes, that is one line that they just can't get through. Yeah. <laughs> She's just... Apparently, um, Kevin Eldon has said before that out of everyone he's ever worked with, which is a lot of people, Julia Davis is like the worst for corpsing. Like she just can't keep a straight face, I guess. it's And, you know, that says a lot, I think, given that she did write the show, so she knows all of the jokes already. Yeah. Like people's performances are so bizarre that it, I think it takes her by surprise sometimes. Totally. And I think this is the massive chasm between who she is as a person and this character. I think every so often she gets a kind of like sort of flicker where she's like, what What am I doing? Who am I? And that's just hilarious because it's so far from from who she is. Yeah. I think once in an interview where she was talking about Sally Forever, she said something about how when she's writing it and sometimes even when she's making it, she doesn't really register how shocking it is and then she was at like a some sort of screening for the first episode of Sally Forever and people in the audience were like oh my god and she was watching it thinking what have I done <laughs> I didn't realize it was this bad that's really interesting because I think it's that difference between like what is it in your head as opposed to actually seeing it realized and I think Chris Morris said something once where he was like oh I don't think I'm I'm not trying to be controversial I just do the stuff that I'm interested in yeah exactly and I think Julia Davis has that self-awareness to come back around and watch it and be like oh my god and that's the thing that like that particular joke of, of Glenn's about about Rachel is like I, that was one that I found more difficult to watch this time around because I didn't realize like how blatantly a rape joke it, it is essentially yeah. but I think because it's I think it's still something about like, it still falls on Rachel is a rapist. It's not denying that where I was like, oh, okay, no, I think we can just about balance that. But it is, but it's a completely shocking moment for sure. And then he's talking about how, oh, she, she was a big ra girl, Rachel. She was a PE teacher, my, my PE, PE teacher. <laughs> Such an awful relationship. God, yeah, because the layers just come away and away and you realise like, oh, you know, um, Glenn, this is not the first time that he's been preyed upon mm. by, well, a female predator. Maybe Rachel was even worse than Jill. <laughs> Sounds like it's a similar similar level maybe yeah at one point though he like reaches forward and sort of touches her boob while she's looking away oh yeah no one <laughs> gets away like we were saying like glenn's still not likable like he's still essentially only interested in one thing in this really um kind of um sinister curious ways like he doesn't even understand sex he doesn't understand boundaries or anything mm. so he's awful in his yeah. own way and, and at the start of the date when she's taken her coat off he's like licking his lips looking oh. at her and stuff whereas at the end of the date he is unzipping his fleece and she just looks so unimpressed and i think that's the point she's like right i'm off exactly says, a... she, says she's going to the toilet but then doesn't come back and obviously as she leaves we see she's wearing these ridiculous trousers that have just got no like bum in them at all um after that we go to the church group and this is where we meet sue I, I've, I've only realised quite recently, I think 
religion is a little bit of a running theme in her stuff. Yeah. Like it's not really something that that struck me before but i've read a few interviews now where she's mentioned that her family were quite religious oh i didn't know that that's when i started noticing this sort of thing because obviously in this there's the church group in hundaby there's you know priests and vicars and stuff and then in sally forever quite recently sally has got like a sort of religious strict mum hasn't she yes and yeah and even going back to human remains there's an episode about a christian couple i think that genuinely has my favorite quote from human remains which is um church is your vaccination against the devil and these sessions are your booster <laughs> yeah that is a good one i was thinking of her whenever i think of that episode i think of a curly sausage casserole oh my god yes strange food coming up that's another running theme like religion and revolting food revolting meat like processed meat products i actually here's a thing now we're on the subject of meat um i think uh watching back through this series i think sausage rolls are either mentioned or seen in every single episode yeah whenever she's in the village hall she seems to have like a plate of sausage rolls in her hand that she's just helping herself to (laughs) bizarre they're at the church group and uh, sue is introducing kath to everyone because she's new and of course jill is just like interrupting all the time this is the point where we find out that kath has ms she's saying how she used to be a dancer and oh you know i don't want to be defined by my illness and jill is like oh poor little thing in a chair It's just the worst. And she says to her, oh, is, is it life-threatening your NS? Because my husband is an hospital dying of cancer. <laughs> just constantly bring it up to make people feel bad. And Kath is just putting up with it, being ridiculously polite. And yeah. like, oh no, go on, do your dance. No problem. We don't need to talk about me. <laughs> we come to the dance, which is to Lavender by Marillion. <laughs> and, you know, she's spinning around, which is where she sort of locks eyes with Dawn in the doorway. And then immediately starts trying to make it into a sort of sexy dance, doesn't she? <laughs> Just, I hope when the Royal Vauxhall Tavern did their Miss Jill Tyrrell competition, I hope somebody attempted this. Oh, this should be around. This should yeah. be absolutely um, for the judges to score. And it's that first moment that they see each other and... It's it's both ways. Yeah. Like it's, it's not just chill sort of. Mm. There's definitely kind of a, a spark there. And I, yeah, it's a bit unusual because I feel like in about 90% of the series, Don seems not interested in her in that way at all really yeah. like he's definitely more interested in sue because she's got big boobs like yes. he's just constantly ogling them mm-hmm. whereas with jill he seems interested in her maybe at this point where they first meet but then throughout most of the series i feel like he's pretty much just neutral towards her yes it's not like this romantic love story where he really wants to be with her or anything like no. he's pretty just nothing towards her really a lot of the time totally and i think it's just again it's more of um him being completely ineffectual and just kind of waiting for everyone else to do stuff around him yeah and after this uh, performance um (laughs) kath and don are talking to sue and her husband gordon who's the vicar and yeah don is just blatantly looking at sue's chest (laughs) not even trying to hide it and again kath seems to notice these things but she doesn't say anything no she just can't 
face up to it and actually sort of assert herself. There's a bit of a mix up because Jill doesn't realize at first that Don and Kath are married. And she, I love this little exchange where she says to Don, um, Kathy's got MS, Don. She used to be a dancer. What was it, Kath? Tap? And, and <laughs> Kath goes, ballet. And Jill goes, oh dear. <laughs> it's like, it's not just, just really silly, like not relevant at all, whether it was ballet or tap. She's like, what was it, Kath? Tap? <laughs> Uh, so bizarre and then realizes that they're married and is really patronizing like oh well done Kathy well done you he's a doctor well done <laughs> and we go back to the salon and she's using this head massager on this bald man's head <laughs> and says like, oh this this may bring on orgasm I'll let you know <laughs> <laughs> Just these poor customers Linda's late again because of Dennis and Joy is sort of like, oh, I'd like to talk to that Dennis. And Jill says, well, I've spoken to her about it time and time again, Joy, but she just does not want to hear his side. <laughs> As if that is the issue with the whole situation. Like, We need to hear Dennis's side in this abuse. Yeah. <laughs> and saying things to Linda like, oh, you know, you're not going to find anyone else, Linda. <laughs> Poor, yeah, she definitely needs to stop being friends with Jill. I agree. I think Linda is quite sympathetic, actually. It's just it's hard sometimes because she's so kind of repulsive in mm. just eating constantly. And oh, it's where she's. Um, I think I've put it put it down here in a later episode. Um, she's giving someone a pedicure. Yeah, and she's really <laughs> digging. Oh, lovely, scraping off the, uh, the hard yeah. hard skin. And again, it's just like oh, okay. Apparently, again, that's based on an experience that Ruth Jones actually had. Like she was getting, you know, a pedicure off someone. I think she said it was in Cardiff again. And this woman was sort of like, I'm going to go quiet now because I love doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so disgusting. But And I was watching this the other day with the subtitles on. And at one point while she's doing that, the subtitles just say um, orgasmic size. <laughs> She's enjoying it that much. That's an excellent sound label. It's yeah, it goes deep for Linda at that point. Although the subtitles aren't always right. I think I tweeted about this the other day. I had some problems with some of the subtitles. Like oh, at one shame. point, Jill says, um, cappuccino'd be nice. And it came up as cup of tea would be nice. Oh, no, I was like, a, this person hasn't been watching the show properly. It's a wildly they? different beverage. It's actually very important. Yeah. I mean in 2004, was a cappuccino a particularly fancy drink? Because in Sally Forever recently, she keeps going on about a cortado, cortado. which does seem fancy. Like, <laughs> I hadn't heard of it before Sally Forever. Like, was cappuccino the equivalent at the time? Or is it, or is that maybe the joke? I'm not sure. The fact that it's not fancy, but she thinks it is. It works both ways. Mm, fair enough. Excellent joke. Um, another sort of example of Jill being quite sort of tacky is this moment where uh, Joy brings up that Terry had an affair and Jill says, I think one of my favourite lines in the whole of Nighty Night, she says, um, if you'd had your first erection in 15 years, Joy, you would want to poke it somewhere. And I was in Bristol seeing Phantom on Ice. <laughs> <laughs> I used Phantom on Ice is like the perfect thing because obviously it's not real. I feel like a lot of women who were a bit Jill Tyrrell like have a bit of a thing about Phantom of the Opera because they think it's classy mm. when it's not. Mm. And making it Phantom on Ice is like is even more tacky yes. and bizarre. I'm not sure where this is actually 
set. I mean, because she says I was in Bristol. So I assume it's near Bristol somewhere. Yeah, probably kind of your more suburban. And she's the only one who has that sort of accent. There's a variety of accents going on in the show, really. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of a class dynamic to that as well, possibly. I think because, you know, this idea of like Don and Kath being quite middle class Mm -hmm. and where she's kind of her own... uh, their own business entrepreneur. Yeah, invading their lives. We see her then going back to the hospital to see Terry and she brings up this affair because obviously Joy's just mentioned it and it's on her mind saying to Terry, you know, I'm a very attractive woman, Terry. I have men shouting at me in the streets. <laughs> because of course, Jill would take that as a compliment. Indeed. <laughs> and she's asking her about, you know, because she doesn't seem to know who he had an affair with and says, oh, well, did she take it up the rear? Because given the opportunity, Terry, I will take up the rear till I'm blue in the face. She's kind of like an MRA's ideal woman. <laughs> yeah, anything to please the man, really. Like, even, you know, later she's sort of like trying to bounce around on top of Don and going like, oh, this is amazing, Don. And it's like, she's not, clearly not enjoying it. She's just putting on this display. It's all power. She mm. just wants the power. I think Jordan Peterson, I mean, he'd particularly approve of her very heavy meat-based diet, <laughs> but I think, you know, she's uh, up that she could be his lobster. And they're talking about the affair and Terry kind of says he's found it very hard to love her and says, oh, you know, with this other woman, it just sort of happened, you know. And she leaves saying, well, this is the chemo talking. And then obviously she's furious now. She goes home and she starts kind of smashing things up in the house. And this is the moment where Gordon pops around and she tells him that Terry has died. And this is where the big lie begins, really, doesn't Mm. it? The fact that he is now dead, according to Jill. She says he died in his sleep during watercolour challenge and Gordon is trying to comfort her and says oh you know God was obviously eager to take Terry into his home and Jill says or Satan (laughs) poor Terry (laughs) she goes straight around to Kath and Don's it's the middle of the night Kath's asleep and she's saying that she wants her plate back and obviously Kath has like left it at the village hall because you would do <laughs> she didn't know it was Jill's plate. And then she ends up giving Jill a plate from the kitchen, doesn't she? Yeah. Like Jill's like, I will want that replaced. And she just gives her a random plate from the cupboards. And Jill wants to hang around for Don to come home. And Kath's like, well, it might be a while. And she's like, oh, I've got a few hours. It's fine. I'll just <laughs> sit on the sofa all night. Um, and then we come to the end of this episode in the salon. And she's doing someone's hair in a really unusual way again. She's like wearing a black veil and brushing this customer's hair, but with a really sort of distraught look on her face, like she's putting on this performance of grief. Linda runs in and Jill is like, Terry died and sort of collapses onto her. And then we get this bizarre description of how he apparently died that just goes on and on, like saying, oh, he arched up and off the bed like a cobra swallowing a horse and he stood up and he sprinted up and down the ward (laughs) and she brings up the you know he was apologizing for having an affair and linda looks a bit kind of shifty at this point Mm. so i think that's the moment where you kind of think "Hmm, something something's gone on here like was it maybe her who he had the affair with and i love ruth jones does a really weird delivery at this point like I can't recreate it, but when she's kind of like, no, Jill, no, <laughs> it's the weirdest <laughs> delivery. So bizarre. 
And that's the end of the episode, really. We see Terry as a final shot. He's in the hospital, very much still alive. And then we see this newspaper, which says a local woman in bridge suicide, and it's Mrs. Horner. Mrs. Horner. It's a lot in the first episode, isn't it? There's so much that's set up. And I think the motivations and the pacing are just perfect, because so often these days, and I don't want to sound too down on the age of streaming and peak TV, but your first episode doesn't often grab you They can totally. be slow, yeah. It can be really slow or a bit expositional if it is the first episode is essentially a pilot. Um, but I think this is one of the best first episodes of a series ever because it just gives you the tone, it sets up All of the characters. All of the characters, but through jokes. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, we're going to introduce everyone and then we're going to laugh. It's like, no, it manages to just kick off straight away. And God, I love Julia Davis so much. Yeah. And there's so many different <laughs> things going on and scenes don't go on for too long. And mm. they sometimes cut back and forth between different things. Like we were saying before, the dating agency and the conversation about the neck brace sort of uh, intercut with each other. Yeah, it's a great first episode. And Mrs. Horner is kind of this like, rule of three that you forget about because we we see her at the beginning um we actually see she's we see her at the restaurant because she actually happens to be on a date sort of parallel um and then and then we hear of her demise and it's hard to see how you know it's not just jill who's uh, the cause of that thank you for listening to part one of this episode about nighty night series one in part two i'll be talking to emily about the remaining episodes of the series you can find us on twitter at Julia Davis QOTD and you can find me at It's Sophie Davis. This podcast was edited by Alex Bondek with original music by Martin Ford and Matt Bond.